0: by uh, asking you to introduce yourself. Everybody, all my guests introduce themselves. You don't have to wear it on your full ears. Whatever feels comfy. This is what I do. Yeah. Ooh.
1: Um, are we recording? Yeah. Introduce okay. myself now? Yeah. Uh, I'm Dan Savage. I'm primarily known for writing Savage Love, a syndicated sex and relationship advice column, which I've been writing since 1991. Wow. And I've been doing the Savage Love Cast, my podcast for, I think, 10 or 11 years now. And, uh, yeah, that's about... I. Uh, executive editor of The Stranger in Seattle, and I've written some books and occasionally get to run my mouth on television, occasionally run myself into a ditch running my mouth, which is something that everybody who runs their mouth for a living eventually does sure, (laughs) or repeatedly does. Um, And uh, it's a nice gig.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I've – I mean, I've had the chance to say this to you. Uh, I think I said this to you like years ago you came to see me do stand-up, but really for context for our listeners – uh, you're actually like a very important person to me because when I was first coming out, I knew zero queer people, zero, zero queer people. Um, we were both raised really Catholic. We were both raised in Chicago. Um, and I was living in Boston. And the Phoenix, the Boston Phoenix, the Alt Weekly ran your column, mm-hmm. ran Savage Love. and
1: The uh, dearly departed Boston Phoenix. Yes.
0: Uh, so sad. Uh, Actually, like, I really loved alt weeklies. So, I mean, I'm I know I'm the I know I'm the the, 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 I know I'm uh, it feels like maybe you would like them even more, but um, but yeah, I really I really loved reading that. And that column, your column really, I mean, truly was like the first thing that gave me context at all for a real for real life queerness and for gay relationships and for. Because other than that, it was all scripted stuff. It was and like Today's young word.
1: queers have the internet instead. Yeah. Yes. And, and many, many, many uh, more diverse and, and sometimes smarter queer voices than mine, <laughs> uh, for which I'm grateful. But I've heard that from a lot of yeah. uh, queer people and also from a lot of straight people, which is often very that, – that I was the queer person that you got to know when you didn't know any other queer people. But also for a lot of straight readers, I was the gay guy that they got to know before they knew any queer people. And nothing undoes homophobia like knowing someone who's – gay. Yeah. And I was for a lot of young straight people, that gay guy that they knew. Um, and it's a, it's a real honor and it's a thrill when, when people say that I hear that less and less from, um, younger people because they have access to the internet. There's more queer representation, There's more queer people on television. There's Rachel Maddow's, there's Anderson Cooper's, um, there's 10,000 queer podcasters and people with their own blogs and, um,
0: Thank you, Matt.
1: Previously, with Sparkling water has
0: been delivered to us <laughs> to, as we talk. Cuz this is what it's like to be queer now. Yes. There's Rachel Maddow's on TV and people just deliver sparkling water <laughs> while you speak.
1: <laughs> it's better it got better it, it as somebody is. once said. It
0: did get better as someone once said. Um yeah, yes. I mean, I well, you know what? You know what's interesting is like that is true and I and I know also that you're going to agree with me on this, but that is true that like now there's all these people. I still hear this all the time at my shows that I'm somebody's first gay person. I mean, I I hear this all the time. And from like, you know, sometimes like from teens. Somebody's
1: got to be the first.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And you remember what it was like to be a young queer person. It was more recently for you than for me. You tended to avoid queer voices because they were speaking to a part of you that you wanted to silence or a part of you that you wanted to suppress. And it was destabilizing sometimes to hear queer shit and and you Mm. kind of pulled away from it. So the first queer voice or novel or character in a film that spoke to you really broke through sometimes a lot of resistance because it wasn't like when I was 13 14 years old and a little gay kid in Chicago I was like yes yes where are my gay mentors (laughs) I was like no no this can't be possible
0: yeah I feel like actually you and I wait here yeah I feel like we (laughs) We should have told him it was Schlitz yeah
1: yeah old (laughs) Chicago or old Milwaukee I
0: feel like we may have um Had slightly different experiences on that only because of the ages that we were when we realized that we were queer. Because I think you were, like you said, you're like a younger, like a 13, 14 year old person realizing this. And I was like 19. So by the time you're 19, you're fully like, you have, I was like, who is around? Like, who (laughs) can I find? Like, literally, just like, is anyone? Is there anyone? And, uh, and, it was just, I couldn't find it. Like, I really couldn't. Um, I mean, I was going to school at Boston College, and at the time, it was prohibited in their, like, the, you couldn't be gay on that, campus.
1: For, for people who may not know this, it's a Catholic university.
0: Catholic university.
1: I spoke there once. They invited me to speak there what once. What year do you I think? I don't know, like 15 years Bagely. ago. The yeah. height of the marriage okay. equality debate yep. when I was doing a lot of college yep. speaking. And they you know, gave me a talking to before I went on mm-hmm. about the things they did not want me to say. And you know what? That That's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. So I immediately went yeah. up there and said, here are all the things I'm not supposed to talk about. Let's talk about those first. And get that out of the way. Right. It was a fun place to talk. I got a t-shirt. Still have it.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think that that – it's also a, a school that – like I don't just think – well, first of all, I made a lot of great friends there. There were a lot of ways it positively impacted my life. It is also a school that like to this day – I believe I believe this is still true. Um it was the last time I checked, you could not you cannot get birth control on campus, meaning even condoms, and I mean it's also a school where I think it's it's some very high percentage 75, 80 percent of students live on campus. It's one of those schools where everybody lives on campus, so everybody lives on campus, and
1: everybody has anal.
0: Everybody has yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes you still <laughs>
1: God's birth control. Sometimes
0: you still could benefit from a condom when you're <laughs> well, no, doing you, anal. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah.
1: Absolutely need a condom, but if what you're trying to avoid is yeah. conception, it's very effective.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just that the pill wasn't. It it kind of blew my mind that it's like you couldn't even get you couldn't even get condoms. Like you couldn't. Um, get condoms without getting on a train, which uh, then once you got the condoms, then you were getting on a train.
1: Okay. (laughs) Who cares? It was a good
0: joke I made. Um, Let's talk for you about – I'm so curious because I don't know if I actually have ever read this. How did Savage Love first get started?
1: Uh, Tim Keck, who was one of the two guys who created and founded The Onion, Tim Keck invented writing bullshit in the AP style – uh, sold The Onion in Madison, Wisconsin a million years ago and was moving to Seattle to start a, an alt-weekly paper in Seattle because that's where his girlfriend wanted to live. It's literally why they picked Seattle. They went there, they thought the weekly there sucked and they were going to like go start a weekly and put it at that weekly out of business, which in the end he did. Um, and I met him at a party uh, introduced by a friend and I said, oh, he's telling me about his paper and I said, you should have an advice column because everybody reads those. You see that Q&A format, you can't not read it. And he said, Excellent advice, write the advice column for my newspaper. And I wasn't angling for the gig. I'd never really written anything for publication at the point. Um, and we began to sort of like joke about, you know, he's starting a straight newspaper, a straight alt weekly newspaper. This is 1991. This was way, way back when there weren't gay people writing in the New York Times and were openly gay. It just wasn't kind of a thing. Uh, and so we joked about what that column, if I was going to give sex advice to straight people and straight readers as a gay guy, what that would look like. Um, I wanted to call the column, Hey Faggot, uh, because it kind of at the same rhythm as dear Abby and the same big flat Chicago way. Hey Faggot, dear Abby. Um, and the idea was I was going to treat, straight people and straight sex with the same contempt and revulsion that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with. And it was just a joke. And I was going to do it for six months or a year. I had a boyfriend. We'd been living in West Berlin. That's how long ago it was. And we came back to Wisconsin so he could get his master's degree. And then we were going back to Berlin. And then he took a job for on the road for a year in the States. And I was like, well, I'm going to go help them start a newspaper and then we'll like meet up for vacations and then we'll go back to Berlin. Uh, And then I moved to Seattle where I'd never been and never wanted to be. Uh, And we broke up, my ex-boyfriend and I, and I was marooned there. And in like four months, my joke column suddenly became an actual advice column because real questions started to pour in. Because it turned out that for a straight person, being treated with this contempt was an exciting new adventure as opposed to like the same old shit. Wow. And they really responded to it. And suddenly at age 26, I had to figure out where the clitoris was (laughs) and and write about it with some authority. (laughs) One of the early mistakes, you know, the, I was reading the column before Google. Like, if I wanted to know a fact, I had to go to a thing called a library and open up a thing called a book. And the first time I read about the clitoris, I put it in the wrong place. <laughs> and so, where where did you put it? On the soft palate. Turns yeah. out that's where mine is, and yeah. I just projected okay. and assumed that that's uh-huh. where everyone's was. Um, I put it uh, inside. Oh, no, not outside and above. I just thought it was. Oh yeah yeah. In there somewhere, like a. You know, Joy Buzzer.
0: That being said, like that makes perfect sense. That really makes perfect sense. That that that's what you would think. I I don't think that you like let's say you're a straight guy mm-hmm. um and it's nineteen ninety one. Like, I still kind of think that's what your opinion is gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> like I really think
1: A lot of straight guys now Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And then also now shitty sex still education true. or no sex education? No sex ed. And then you're just like, by the way, um, also like your pleasure really matters. That's that's, um, we're telling you that cause like these condoms are like, you know, like we were like trying to make them so thin cause it's just like really important that you can't even feel them at all right And, uh, and also like good luck. Yeah. <laughs> good. Like I hope it goes like, I just think it's going to go great. Like, well,
1: you can't make a baby if he didn't enjoy himself. If he didn't climax, there's no right. baby. And all that's it's right. about is a baby. And if you have sex up, right. it's just reproductive biology. You can't avoid talking about the male orgasm, but you can sidestep female pleasure entirely. Yes, you can. And all of the you know the clitoris, which just exists to provide pleasure, doesn't even have to uh, come up. I'm sure it doesn't come up at Boston U very often. Oh
0: my, I mean, well, if like,
1: Alter boys had clitorises, they would be talking about them at Boston U.
0: I mean, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, do I don't know. Well, you would know better than I would. But I, I mean, how often do we? How often when people are even writing in about sex, is there a question about pleasure? Like even percentage wise, there. Like I feel like I listen to your, I listen to the Savage Love Cast. It's like.
1: Much more often,
0: yes. Yeah, like it's like roommates, you know. Like that's more often what people are writing in yeah. than about. Like,
1: yeah, it's a know, lot pleasure. of situation. It's really changed in the nearly thirty years. I've been doing this. Um, you know, I used to get a lot of I called them definitions and referrals. People would hear the word fisting and not know anything about it. Oh, and then they write me like, "What is this fisting thing?" Or "What is water sports?" Because there was no Google to consult, and if you didn't have a gay friend who would answer any question you, they would write me and I would say, it's this, and here's how you do it. And here's the, here are the risks and here are the, you know, here's why you shouldn't panic about it. Um, and referrals where people would say, you know, I'm here in Dallas and I want to join the swinger. I want to find the swingers and I can't find them. And you couldn't just Google it. Mm. There were these like some dot publications, which are probably going to come back as they drive sex and sex workers off the internet because of Fosta Sesta. Um, these publications were, were there these lists of PO boxes for the swingers clubs and all over the country and I would like print the PO box and I would refer people. But now there's Google, you know, butt plugs have a wiki page. You don't need me to tell you what a butt plug is anymore. So all the questions now are, I did this, they did that. Who's the asshole? Mm. Who's in the wrong? And I'm I'm Solomon like carving babies in half week after week after week. And it's a much tougher gig now than it was 30 years ago.
0: Wow. That's pretty interesting. I wonder though. I mean, yes, you can, you can absolutely Google all of those things and then you're going to get, um, a lot of porn. And then you can hopefully, like, if you're savvy at being on the internet, eventually get to information. But, like, how do you always
1: remember to put, you know, if you're gonna look up butt plug, fist fucking water sports, just what fist fucking wiki. And the first thing that comes up is actually very helpful and informative. What you've suggested is an
0: extremely helpful solve. I just wanna say. So glad I asked that question because <laughs> there it is, listeners. Just That's think of it. it
1: like that thing with uh, fortune cookies when you add embed at the end. Yeah. Just whatever you're going to search online, wiki. just add wiki at the end. Not everything on wiki is 100% accurate. Sure, but but for the most part, a lot of it really is.
0: There's some good information there. I have
1: a wiki page. I had nothing to do with it. There's some shit on there. I'm like, where did that come from? Oh, That's yeah. not true. And what am I supposed to do about that? Can't go in there and edit it myself because I don't know how. And no.
0: Really. Um. I mean, you could ask your listeners and it would get like fixed up real quick. That's the thing. That's like a good (laughs) thing to ask other people to do for you. Um, Uh,
1: Go on Wiki, please, and make me 34 again. Yeah,
0: okay. For a long time, um, one of my top goals was to be, (laughs) I don't know why I thought this would be really great, but um, like as a famous alum from uh, the high school and college that I went to, but just the only qualification be lesbian. Like, cause it would, cause there was like, every school has like that little box right. that is like person and then like what they did. And I just wanted it to say oh, lesbian. Brigadier general. Yeah, lesbian. exactly. And I just wanted to see lesbian. But now I think it says like stand up comic, um, that, ugh, so like what a pain. Um, but I, for a while it was, and that's because <laughs> I asked people to do it, not because I ever figured it out. So you're 26, you've got this big job and.
1: Uh, you know, jumping back to the clitoris thing, yeah. like. I've always said that the column is as much an education for me as it is for my readers. Mm. Um, You appear to be omniscient when you write an advice column. It looks like you have all the answers because you don't print questions you don't have answers for. Or you get a question, you don't have the answer. You find the answer, then you print it as if you knew it all along. But, you know, you get things wrong and then people yell at you and then you read some more and uh, reassess. Uh, And, yeah, I know so much about pussy now. I'm like that autistic savant who's never been to Tokyo, but can draw you a map of the subway system. Like I know all the stops. (laughs) I know right where you get off, but I've never been.
0: Well, actually that is okay. I have many, I have many places to branch off of there. One is one thing I like that happens on your podcast is that you have that like little section at the end where people can, it like is actually a great way of covering number one of like getting some listener voices in there, which mm-hmm. you know it's always great to include in number two, like covering your ass, because you don't have to be the only person responsible for making every choice. Like listeners can call in and you air some of those. Mm-hmm.
1: But um it's not it's not binding arbitration. You look up advice in the dictionary yeah. and it says opinion about what could or should be done. The only qualification you need to give your opinion is somebody who was dumb enough to ask you for your opinion. And Advice columns, you know, if you look at old Ann Landers columns, if you look at pre internet, even me. Um, Every third or fourth column was like reader feedback and people like debating the question, offering their own advice, telling Anne or me that we were wrong and telling us what we should have said. And sometimes Anne, who's like kind of a hero and a role model for me, Anne saying, yeah, I was wrong, 50 lashes with the wet noodle and here's, you know, this is better advice than my advice. And advice columns really were kind of interactive bloggy things before blogs came along. Because they were this kind of conversation, the you know leader, not necessarily the author, because the readers write half the column. And if you're doing a lot of responses or feedback, the readers are contributing that, their expertise, their insight, their lived experience as well. And you're sort of uh, coordinating or uh, curating the column, but you're not writing the column.
0: Well, one thing I've also noticed about the tone of those people that call in, and I mean it's like I guess they're enough of a fan that they – would call in to begin with. But um, it's not usually chastising. It's usually informational. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's like i I'm really surprised sort of a thing. And I I think it's also a good example of ways that we can provide correction to each other because we do live in this era where, like, because I'm social media, things fly out really fast. And then it's hard to know, um, like, what would be good behavior? Because, like, for me or you um, – like, I will tell you, I'm a person. It does feel like shit if I make a mistake or a tiny um, omission. And then people are pieces of shit to me. And it feels.
1: And you're canceled.
0: Yeah. And it feels okay if people are like um, but, but, providing information or like even just like I'm disappointed.
1: What What's crazy about so many, I think, bad actors on social media is this presumption of malice that, sure, that yeah. there was something about how you said it or a mistake that you made or an omission that it wasn't you know a brain fart it wasn't an accident it wasn't it wasn't out of ignorance and if you knew better you would do better it was because you're an asshole right and you know, it's crazy because I've been doing this for such a long time and there's been such ferment and change, particularly in queer land, about so much. You know, asexuality came along and I was like, what the fuck is that? That was my first honest reaction was like, oh, come on, bullshit. Right. And there hadn't been any studies and there hadn't really been, you know, uh. I forget his name, David, who created AVN, uh, the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network. You know, he got in my face and then we ended up having these long conversations and then he became somebody who answered questions in my column when Asexuality came up. I had this whole arc, this like learning curve with Asexuality. I still get grief from my first initial reaction. I still get people yelling at me because of what I said when I was like, what the fuck is that? And then I went and learned what the fuck was that. And now like, I totally get it. And I elevate asexual voices and I bring them into the column and I invite <laughs> sure. them onto my platform and I'm like, yeah, it's a real fucking thing. 1% of the population. There's, you know, a spectrum of asexuality There's gray sexuality, demisexuality. like I know it now, but I still have people who are just livid because I didn't know it right away.
0: You know, and that's actually exactly what I was leading into because I know, I, I know that this is something that you've sort of publicly talked about. And I think a lot of our listeners could, a lot of my listeners could really benefit from hearing because I, I, first of all, I know there are people who are erased all the time in our community and who need to speak up and who need to correct me or anyone. And I know there are times I need to do that to other people. That's, that's chill. I think one thing that exists is um, people who are paralyzed by making a mistake. Like we, we do patrol ourselves as a community to an extent where I get a lot of folks that ask me like, what do I do if I use the wrong pronoun for somebody. And I'm like, I think intention does matter. I think adjust. I think like catch up. I think do better next time. But you're somebody who has had to do this pretty publicly. So I'm wondering like what, if anything well, there's, I mean, there's people you want to talk about, about like, well, got
1: it. I don't want to, I don't want to get too much into it because I don't like,
0: well, more so just like, how do you keep your spirit intact as you have to publicly adjust? Cause I feel like that's something queer people are having to do right now. It's like, we're having to look at our community and do better. And so like, how have you,
1: I've gotten, it like from both, your I've gotten it from both sides. Like Breitbart has come for me. Uh, Fox News has come for me. I've had days where it's just like, you know, nothing but death threats and nothing but furious, angry people right. from the right. Breitbart right. did a week on me, right? Where, right? Like every day on their front page, like three or four articles, about what an asshole I am. And what that does to your social media and your voicemail inbox and your email inbox is insane.
0: Like scary. Yeah, scary? it's scary.
1: And I've also gotten it from the left and often the queer left, sometimes there's this anger that attaches to me because there's this fear that my listeners and readers are straight people. And that makes me more dangerous because if I get it wrong, I'm screwing up straight people who have the power to really harm us. And so I'm held accountable in ways that are different sometimes because my audience is a straight audience. Mm. I've always been writing to straight people, mostly about straight sex. And so I get that I have to like be held to a slightly higher standard because of that awesome responsibility. Like, I'll get it from the right, I'll get it from the left, and then it'll come down, and then I'll get, like, angry stuff. And I literally have to click through to somebody's main page to figure out if this is a right-winger, this is one of the Breitbart assholes still coming at me, or if this is one of of my fellow queer people still coming at me. And that is so telling that that, that it's about rage, and people want to rage at you. And how I keep my spirits up is – you don't have to show up to get punched. Like when Breitbart or Fox News, when I put my foot in it or I say something that pisses them off, bullshit in the Bible in front of high school kids, um, I turn off my phone. I don't look at my email that week. And then maybe I look back a week later, but I don't show up to get killed. And I have so many people, I have a friend right now who's going through it, who's getting dragged, and she's just sitting there with her phone in her hand And just like you take the phone away and you put it down and say, let's go to the movies. You don't have to sit there and take this in. You don't have to show up for your execution on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr or anywhere else. That's voluntary when you show up for your execution. Like mm -hmm. walk the fuck away. Go to a movie. Say sorry if you think you need to say sorry. Read a little bit of it then once you said sorry and people keep pummeling you and coming at you, they're not coming at you for an apology. They're coming at you for blood and they want to hurt somebody. Don't show up. Don't be the meat. I
0: I think that's, I think that's a good answer because like I said, I mean, I'm not, I am advocating that we always try to do better. And I think that's what you advocate. Of course. Yeah.
1: The golden rule.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, there is that middle ground and I, and I just see you as somebody who's had to deal with that. And when I.
1: I mean, it's a difficult line to walk because you can't just dismiss anybody who's angry at you because sometimes people are angry at yeah. you for legitimate reasons.
0: Of course.
1: Um, and so you have to like be nimble enough to like dip into the pile of anger and like pluck out what you needed to know. And then when you figure out what you need to know, you don't have to keep dipping into that pile of anger about that particular thing anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think this is I think this really is important to the queer family because as we grow like and we're you talking, say things
1: like I, I hate when people say the queer family. Oh, do you? Tell yeah, me. Because we're not fam like gay and lesbian brothers you don't and feel sisters. Like we're family? I think that's I think that's damaging. Okay, tell me. Particularly to young queers, I think that's damaging because it causes a lot of young queer people to enter the gay community or the queer community with their guards down. Like, oh now I'm finally surrounded by queer people, I'm safe family. It's like, yeah, no, you're not. And maybe this is a lesson I learned in a scalding way. Cause when I was first like realizing I was gay, the papers in Chicago were covered with John Wayne Gacy and all these dead gay boys yeah. my age, uh, or a little bit older than me. Uh, and then when I was like in my twenties, early twenties, still living in Wisconsin, Jeffrey Dahmer ate my friend Tony. And so I just never had the, like, I'm safe here. Like I'm in a gay bar. So because I'm of safe.
0: actual serial killers. Look, first of all, Dan, I just want to say, I think those are, I think that is an atypical
1: response. <laughs> but, 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 to, but, but but like, you know, the, but, the bullies, you know, the straight yeah, kids that I hated and I got away from, they couldn't break my heart. Okay. Right. They could punch me. They could scare me. They could yeah. insult me and hurt me that way. Call me faggot. Um, and once I was over that and like calling me a faggot didn't hurt because it's what I want my boyfriend to call me while he fucks me. Who can hurt me now? And so I, I see this a lot, like the, the bitter ex-gays. Remember the ex-gays? Um, they're still like rolling around out there. When you sit down and talk with an ex-gay, they're usually really bitter about the, the gap between their expectations of how they would be received when they came out, how they would be welcomed, how they would be cared for by other queer people. And what they met when they came out, which was people who weren't very nice, which was queer people who are assholes. Sure. And- I think queer people are assholes at a slightly greater rate than straight people are assholes.
0: Do you tell me more about that? <laughs> I, I, well, I—I I mean, I'll—I'll I'll tell you. Like my experience is that um, I love straight folks. I have a lot of friends that are straight. I have two straight siblings. I also work in comedy. It turns out I know straight people, uh, especially straight men. There are like a few of them that do stand-up comedy. I've heard. Yeah, like they're a minority, but they're around. Um,
1: we need an affirmative action yeah. program for straight male comedians. <laughs> so, Someone needs to get one of them a show on television. So Maybe like, a light night. Wouldn't that be cool? Gig? And it's
0: named after them. Um, But yeah, I definitely have those folks around me and they're in my life. And and like after a while, it, it's obviously a choice. It's like I'm choosing to – Maintain friendships and, mm-hmm. and care about these people. But, like, I also think that I feel a different connection.
1: As do I. To people my who are My closest friends queer. Who are queer people.
0: And that I, We have
1: this affinity feeling, with this shared experience.
0: Yeah. Is that that, to me, is familial. But this could just be, like, I'm really super Italian. Like, it's my whole thing. Whatever. Like, what is that feeling to you?
1: We... That there's there's something that we share that could, if we are in other ways simpatico or compatible or compatible, um, be the genesis or, or the touchstone for like a great connection and a great friendship. Like we understand each other's sort of Rosetta Stone pain in a way that others don't and that straight people can't quite appreciate and that can create a a real bond like you know the coming out experience is unique to us and it is our hero's journey and you know you get four queer people together who've never met and eventually people start talking about when they came out and what that was like and telling their parents and and it's just something we all share whether we're you know a conservative republican gay guy and I have no respect for any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, Uh,
0: I'm, I have a limitation there, but yes.
1: Or, you know, some other kind of queer person who's not an idiot. Uh, that still is a shared sort of touched on experience. Um, when I say like, you know, I get in trouble for this. You're going to make me say things I get in trouble for, it. but they're in print out there. I've said this in it's, print. It's so
0: okay. I'm we're, this is good. The, I, I, I welcome this.
1: We point out that we commit suicide at higher rates, use dr- abuse drugs. I think there's a difference between use and abuse, but we abuse drugs at higher rates, abuse sex sometimes at higher rates. We've all known, have gay friends who we've watched punish themselves with sex, harm themselves with sex. Uh, and, uh, you know, we smoke at higher rates. We're more self-destructive. Because of the homophobia, because of the transphobia, because of the biphobia, the enbiphobia, the ace phobia, the panphobia, whatever um we're more you know that that damages us, but that also isn't just doesn't just go inward that there are people who externalize their internalized homophobia, externalize their self hatred and harm other queer people, and it's not just the serial killers um there are people who are just toxic shitty queers. Who are the worst to other queer people because what they hate about themselves, they hate about you. They hate their themselves for being queer. They hate you for being queer and they're going to lash out at you. And some of them are all wrapped in pride flags and pride jewelry and saying all the right things, but they're fucking toxic. And if you don't, if you're on your guard for those folks, if you have this starry eyed Pollyanna attitude about like, oh, you're queer, you're a good one. And if you're only like wary about straight people, you're going to deprive yourself of some great relationships with great straight people. And if you let your guard down whenever you're just in a room full of queer people, you are going to be taken advantage of or harmed by shitty queer people. And they're out there. Some people think I'm one of them. Like I say this and sometimes the people who get angriest at me about it are the people who've been telling me I'm a shitty queer person forever.
0: Well, I mean, I'm wondering if, you know, part of why we might have a different experience of this, because I, th- I think, like, everything you said, it makes t- total logical sense to me and is also not my experience. And that's because if I think about the people who've harmed me the most, um, and if I'm really real, it's it's uh, straight men. Like, I also have a lot of straight men in my life who've been very positive people. So it is not that every single straight man has harmed me. It is that almost every person who's harmed me is a straight man. So when I think about... and That's not just
1: about queerness in this culture. That's about being a woman in this culture. Right. So that's what I was going to say.
0: I think maybe the difference in what I'm talking about might be misogyny. And then I would also add to that, that like, you know, you, I don't know how tall you are, but you're like a, I mean, you're like, you've like some muscles and you're also pretty tall, dude. 6'1". Okay. So like you're out in the world, um... I will say I'm scared in the world. I feel scared. And one thing that so do helps I, though. me. yeah, So do I. Sure.
1: Um, I feel scared in the world because You know, at some point you're still that person with a secret, still walking around trying to pass. Sure. Um, still a- afraid of how you're being perceived uh, and still afraid of violence. Um,
0: okay.
1: I still, you know, my, my husband's from a kind of shitty rural area or a shitty small town and we go there and I'm just a nervous wreck the whole time because I feel like I'm going to get gay bashed to death.
0: Yeah. I mean I I feel that way a lot and I think one thing that I have done in order to cope because like also I'm never going to be – I mean I'll say – I don't know if I should say never. um, I haven't – I have yet to be in a relationship with a dude um, or anybody who can like – Ever project physical protection and that's another thing like so i walk through the world not just as a woman but when i'm with somebody it's usually somebody else who's small um and you know it's usually like like who's even like the boyfriend that beats that beats somebody up on my behalf i don't i haven't had that person since i was 19 (laughs) you know um
1: and i have that person in terry because he's (laughs) fearless and uh and big and muscular now. He was a skinny little twink when I met him, but he's scary now. Um Yeah. So yeah, I totally can appreciate that difference. So
0: I wonder if it's like, you know, a need, actually, like a need to view like queer folks as family because otherwise literally like otherwise who has my back? I mean truly. Um and I mean that I really I really
1: Oh, I, I really don't forget that I'm 54 years old. Don't yeah. forget that in 1982 or three, all my friends started to die. Uh, I came out when I was a teen. I'm like, I'm a, a bit of a rarity or oddity for gay men my age and that I came out in high school. Um, it was typical then for gay people to come out in college if they came out in college, uh, at all, uh, to help people uh, understand what it was like then, I frequently mentioned that I was the only out gay guy in my theater department <laughs> at the University of Illinois, Krannert, sure. uh, in the acting program uh, for a couple of years. Everybody else was gay, it turned out, but they didn't come out until after they graduated. Um, so I was a bit of an anomaly, and I didn't feel safe. And what went down, uh, what was done to gay men, uh, and the way we were treated during the HIV-AIDS epidemic – um, and the way we had to come together and with, came together, not just with each other, but also with lesbians, lesbians were heroes of the, uh, movement, uh, in ACT UP in uh, providing services for people living with AIDS at the time. Um, I hated straight people. I was furiously angry and I, you know, I was one of those, you know, I had it in my head when I first, you know, came to accept myself for being gay, that that meant I had to get away from my family. I had to get away from straight people. I had to, like, find a place where I was just with other queers. I understand sure. that impulse. But then my experience, of it, maybe it's because I started writing Savage Love when I was 26 years old, and suddenly I had all these straight people pouring their fears and insecurities I mean, I and issues into my I I think it could be a peer. lot of
0: things, yeah.
1: And I ended up feeling sorry for straight guys, which I actually didn't think was possible. Like the Grinch, my heart grew three sizes one day and busted out of the x-ray.
0: I feel for straight guys. I think straight guys – uh are, well, first of all, I want to say here's one option for why we have a different opinion than this. It's almost as if two queer people, even two white queer people,
1: can have different can have a different <laughs> experience or
0: opinion. <laughs> um there that's one thing. Second thing I just want to say is uh oh, I don't even remember what I was just gonna say about that. So
1: two white fuck. queer Catholic yeah. people from yeah, Chicago. Yeah. It's
0: almost like we could still have um who knows, but uh you know, I'm 37 and Dan, I'm sure you – like, I'm sure you believe this and that this is not something that's shocking to you. But, like, when I think about younger generations of gay folks that are going to, like, completely miss any evidence of the HIV and AIDS crisis, I will say, like, I actually kind of almost did. Like, at 37, I mean, I got Ryan White on my TV screen. I was too young. Pedro Amoldovar. Even that, I, like, didn't – I mean, I – he was on the real world, and he's almost like like the like I would have been too young. Uh, like I didn't I didn't watch MTV, um, so he was really important to a lot of people. I totally missed him at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I missed what was happening nationally. Like it was not something I was at all aware of. And then it is weird to me to be the age that I am now. I'm like fully an adult and still feel like. Um, I just like really that it doesn't have this lasting presence for younger generations. Like that Good. Like people in,
1: oh, Good. you, you think want You want a plague to end.
0: I don't mean that. You I want mean to, to remember end. that it happened. But
1: yeah, people do need to remember it happened, but we don't raise our children. And our history isn't taught in schools. Yes. And I'm eternally grateful to my very first boyfriend who when I think I was 17- uh, he was 28, and that was also really common then because guys my age weren't out. And so I only could date somebody who was in inappropriately age, gappy. Uh, but, the you know, he wanted to fuck me, but he also made me read books. Uh, you know, I can't remember the name of the author. The psychologist wrote a book called Society and the Healthy Homosexual. And it was the antidote to everything you ever wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, which was this kind of pop sex book science, pop sex, awful book about sex that had these terrible chapters about what gay people are and are like, and oh, wow. how damaged they are. Uh, and he made me read society and the healthy homosexual to understand who I was as a condition of continuing to get to bounce up and down on his dick. <laughs> um, and that was how, you know, the, 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 we have a responsibility when people come out, uh, to educate them because they arrive ignorant and and, uh, you know, I think less so now, though, because there's this access that, you know, a queer kid growing up today, if they're so motivated, is to get online and not just look for porn or not just look, you know, to create their own YouTube channel and do makeup tips, but to actually read and learn. There's, it's all instantly available uh, in a way that it wasn't when, you know, we were younger, particularly when I was younger. Um, but we don't raise our kids.
0: Right. We're also... Like just missing a generation of mm. of people, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which is fucking sad and bizarre that that it yeah. that that is real.
1: But but, but in, I actually, in some ways, you know, after the new drugs, after the cocktail came along, after Lazarus syndrome, uh, which was a happy syndrome, not you know acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, that was people rising from the dead, which was what happened when the the uh, drugs came uh, in 96, the cocktail, uh, there was this desire, not just, you know, among younger generations who weren't old enough to know what the hell was going on, who wouldn't know and then couldn't forget. They just never knew. There's a desire on the part, I think of a lot of us who lived it to like, not have to think about it for five minutes to, to, to return to some semblance of, uh, of normality, uh, and rebuild our psyches. I find myself increasingly just so vulnerable to anything that sort of touches on what you know, 1988 or 1991 was like. You know, people think the worst of it was like 84, 85. The worst, the the death toll was rising every year until '96. Like, I lost a whole bunch of people early, but I was still losing people and at a greater clip into the '90s um, and into '90, you know, '96. And just sometimes something will come along, like, and I will just be shattered by it and thrown back into the moment in a way that uh that it, you know in 2000 i just wasn't thinking about it anymore or or just not allowing myself to think about it and moving past it not wanting to talk about it or think about it now there's this remembering now there's this accounting that has to be done
0: sure i'm i never have heard anybody say that that makes sense that makes sense i'm like we <laughs> we are not asking the question and i think that it is i mean completely act up fell apart. fair also to say We didn't, we needed a a break from providing the information. That's, that's also, that makes sense to me.
1: ACT UP fell apart, not because everybody in ACT UP died, but because everybody in ACT UP was done. Yeah. Everybody hadn't died. Pause or neg, like, was done and needed to think about, do something else. Hmm.
0: Okay, can I change the subject and ask you a question that I just want to make sure I get in today? Sure. Um,
1: Where's the clitoris? Because uh, I can answer that one now. Dan,
0: <laughs> if there is one thing I know, it is where the clitoris is. Um, if there's two things I know. Because you were reading my column when where, you were 19. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's you all. didn't read
1: the column where I put it in the wrong place. Otherwise, you'd <laughs> still be very confused.
0: No, I mean, I say this on stage. But this is 100% true. Like, I didn't know people could have orgasms that had vaginas. I did not know people with vaginas could have orgasms until I gave someone else with a vagina an orgasm. That was, uh, like, we were working towards something, I guess. Like, I mean, like, the body knows what the body's doing. Like, I, but it was.
1: I'm gonna scratch that thing off. No, wait, that, you you just had an orgasm. (laughs) This,
0: like, feels good, I guess. And then, (laughs) but also at the time, I mean, like, maybe it's different now. I'm not totally sure. But another thing that was happening is, like, when I, when I when I was a teen and I was reading, like, Seventeen magazine, Cosmo, things like that, there were always these percentages in there that were the percentage of women that can have orgasms. It was a thing we used to talk about that we don't talk about very much anymore. And it's, that's very good because um, what are they talking about? First of all, like, those women, like, what situation were they in? Do they, Can they identify an orgasm? Like, I just mean it was – it was uh, nobody had good information, and so what we did was we talked about it as if it was built into those people's bodies. Right, and so I grew up reading those, and it was like it would be like eighty percent of women can't have orgasms, and,
1: and so what I was they like, meant was from vaginal intercourse alone with some oafish dolt,
0: exactly. Yes,
1: and a woman who had been socialized not to believe she was entitled to sexual pleasure and had been denied any information about yes.
0: So there I go. Own body. I'm having sex with somebody with a vagina. I'm like, wow, you're part of the twenty percent. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't think it would be possible for me. Like, what? That we've already we've already beat the odds. It's there's two of us here. It can't be both of us. Uh, and then it was, and that was a that was a great and how uh, old moment 20? of realization. You were
1: twenty when this happened.
0: When I was with someone else, yes. But when you first I, had
1: an orgasm, you were twenty. I might
0: have been even twenty-one or twenty-two.
1: Good God.
0: Yeah, because it was a couple years, years, Dan. Do you hear the word I said? Yeah, I did hear years. years. Uh, it was a couple years of being with my first girlfriend. Um,
1: I'm gonna. Can I like do a quick download about guys? Yeah, <laughs> can, can, we, yes. can we please talk about guys again? Yes, yes, about yes. No, this is good. Tell for like me. at least two minutes and I just want to talk about guys again. This comes up in my job a lot where I'm like adjudicating disputes between straight people um, and, and, you know, talking to women, uh, straight women, guys – when they arrive at partnered sex, whether they're gay or straight are experts on their dicks. They know exactly what it takes to come. They know, you know, whatever they need to have in the room is going to be in the room. Um, Whatever they do, they know their orgasmic plateaus. They know the point of orgasmic inevitability. They've been edging themselves for six years. They know women all too often arrive at partnered sex, never having masturbated, never having had an orgasm, not experts on their own junk. And they look at usually a teenage boy and they go, okay, make me come. I don't know how to make me come. You, some teenage boy, probably maybe also a virgin, you should know how to make me. Of course he doesn't know how to make me come. He knows how to make himself come and he's going to masturbate inside you. That's how he's going to make himself come. You have to know how to masturbate on top of him if you're having that kind of sex or masturbate under him during penetrative intercourse. That's how women come. I'm often telling young straight couples who are having issues around this to watch some gay porn. Just like five minutes, get on Pornhub, watch gay guys fucking each other. Look at the guy getting fucked. What's he doing? He's playing with his own dick. You want to come during penetrative sex? Play with your clit. That's how you'll come during penetrative sex. Or get him to play with your clit. Or use a vibrator. Yes. But, you know, so often women just arrive at partnered sex. You know, the culture doesn't encourage them to masturbate. Slut shaming. There's also not the big reveal. Often boys are masturbating for years before they ejaculate for the first time. And some boys, particularly pre- you know ubiquitous pornography, the first time they ejaculated, they didn't expect it. And they didn't know what that was. And they were a little thrown by it. Sometimes boys then, you know, when I was a teenager, thought they were dying. Yes. When the first time they ejaculated. Yeah, or fastly. (laughs) They were just stroking themselves and pleasuring themselves for years before they climaxed the first time. Right. But if you're a woman and you don't start masturbating until you're 18 or 19 or 20 or 21, it may take years of pleasuring yourself before you find the groove that makes you come the first time.
0: Absolutely. I mean, well, and then you also add to that. I mean, everything you said is totally right. And I think... Also, um, we're taught, and I don't know, I have no idea if this is any different, but I will speak about what was taught to me and what I still hear people say. Like, in a stand-up comedy sense, I hear people talk about sex, and I'm like, oh my God, like, um, we're still taught, We st- I still hear people talk about um, women not watching porn, that porn is like a thing that that like your boyfriend is sneaking. I still think that most porn doesn't, ever show anything that actually makes sense with a vagina Um, there's like a lot of like very long nails also what's nice (laughs) what's nice about gay porn like what allows me to relax a little bit and enjoy it is that um if the people that are performing like both have erections i can as a viewer be like oh they're enjoying themselves and it helps me to feel like it's okay for me to watch this Mm. because i hate you know like I'm raised in this world. I know that not misogyny is real. I, I know that, like, women can be in a bad situation. There's nothing physically on their body that's, like, telling me that this is fun for them. I'm hearing out of their mouths what they're saying. Or, like, maybe they're squirting, but it's in a way that's, like, what what is actually happening to her? You know, like, it's, like um,
1: – Bitch sprung a leak.
0: Yeah, like, and so I think there's – it's, like, not just that – it's, like, we're not – touching our own bodies. We're taught that 80% of people with vaginas can't orgasm. And then there's like really nothing to look at. That's the equivalent. I love that you say gay porn. Cause that, that really is also what people with vaginas have to watch. Like it's kind of is. everybody has to watch gay porn. It's very helpful. I and mean, then you tell yeah.
1: someone like a, a dick is a big clit.
0: Yes. Look at what he's
1: doing with his clit, his big giant clit.
0: But I mean, it's, it's like wild to me that I will tell you the things that people say on stage are such a good indication of like a premise is such a good indication of what we accept as a culture, because Mm -hmm. the premise is always like given that we all think this and um, you know, like that I still live in a world where people I know think that like butt sex is something that like women just hate and are agreeing to, you know, like that it's like a, and that's not true. Um, It's not
1: true. And uh, but it's, but it's sometimes true. Sure. Yeah. Data points and there are trends. Um, it is broadly true that most people who object to their partner watching pornography are women.
0: I feel like. Maybe for that reason. We because We gave they- people some different information about like, I mean, I, I know I, you're actually doing this. This might be your job is almost mm. to give people different information, but I think about something like. Like if that wasn't involved in the negotiation, and of course we can't take sex out of culture, but I just mean if it's like two people deciding whether or not she wants to have butt sex and she just gets to make that decision based on sensation and not on like what it means, I feel like that would be an amazing world. And I really wish we could get the studies on that, But but like the actual studies on that.
1: What needs to be said to someone who's curious about butt sex is it's a spectrum like every other fucking thing these days. You don't have to, the first time you enjoy some sort of anal pleasure or stimulation, it can't be about some giant dick slamming in and out of your ass. It has to be about other forms of play or toys and you should like tiptoe the fuck up to it. Hmm. And you know, you want to create a positive association. And so having some anal stimulation, particularly if you are a prostate glandless person, having some anal stimulation that you, uh, you know, that's concurrent with pleasuring yourself in another way by which you climax is actually very helpful uh, for folks. But, you know, that's not going to be taught but we have pornography teaching a lot of people that you know anal should come standard that anal is the new oral mm-hmm. and then you have people attempting it uh and they try to go for what they've seen and it, it's a real problem but we're not going to have a sex ed class that like says you can't just do the anal you saw in porn the first time you try anal first right. time you do anal maybe get a little butt plug maybe get a little vibrator right. maybe eat each other's holes and masturbate together like they're not going to tell you that in a in
0: Yeah grade, of course not uh, but sex it ed is class. but then what about like the cool hip people who never go beyond their sex ed class. Like, that's what scares me. It's like, it's not that I think like some people will be left behind, but it's more so just like, oh my God, it's such a large percentage of people being left behind. It just makes me, it makes me sad.
1: Okay. You were about to ask me a question and then I interrupted and we went off on this enormous tangent. So do you even remember what that question was? was? I
0: do remember. Um, What I was going to ask you is about your experience parenting at the time in our culture when you – Adopted your son. Um, I you would know the exact year and I don't know if you're comfortable sharing it, but it's 98. like 98. OK, so a very unusual thing at that time.
1: Yeah, for a gay male couple at that time, particularly to do an open adoption, which is where the mother picks the family the child is placed with. Um, we were there are others out there uh, who had adopted. There were certainly gay men who were parents before Terry and I became parents. But to adopt as a couple at that time uh, was really rare. Um, and it was a little high fire. Uh, I don't talk, I've, not written a lot about it. Um, my son's almost 21. Uh, there were moments that were just very, very odd. And, and, you know, when we were adopting the most grief we got was from queer people. Mm. You know, we had older gay and lesbian friends who were like, what the fuck are you doing? This is the trap that we, you know, we were, you know, forced to have children or felt compelled to have children and family or want to get married. And now this is what you want to do. Like, cause for, you know, there's this older lesbian friend, Barbara Bailey, who just passed away recently, who owned a bookstore in Seattle, who Terry worked at the bookstore. She was a wonderful, politically savvy, uh, fabulous, uh, tell it like it is blunt dyke, uh, but very classy and from a wealthy family. And she was just flabbergasted that we would want to do this, uh, Now, you know, we weren't hurt by it. Like it was just this exchange, you know, it wasn't like we were wounded, you know, she's like, why would you want to do this? And we would tell her, why would you want to do this? She'd go, you're crazy. And we'd go, well, that's what we're going to do. It wasn't like we were sad or burst into tears. Uh, when Barbara gave us grief or gave us shit, we loved it when Barbara gave us shit, but it was uh, a different time. And, you know, I have terrible memories about, you know, some things that went on, uh, there's this uh, right-wing radio talk show host who did a show about how there's this case where this woman uh, had a child with another woman and then converted, became a fundamentalist Christian and absconded to South America with the kid. And the other mother has never seen the kid ever again. And it was this conspiracy, Oh wow! uh, you know, and other people have gone to jail for this crime. Right. And this guy got on the radio and said that there should be an underground railroad kidnapping the children uh, who've been adopted by gays and lesbians and rescuing them from our families. And they, said our names. And we got emails with pictures of our house and we had to go to our then seven year old son and be like, so there, if somebody comes to the door, if somebody comes to your school and tells you that we're hurt and they're there to pick you up or this or this or this or this, this, this," and, and to explain that to him. And then one time when he was, this was on NP fucking R, I believe we're listening to the radio and there's somebody being interviewed who's against gay adoption and DJ is sitting there. And it's this person says on the radio that gay men adopt children because we want to adopt boys because we want to rape them. And our eyes lock, mine and DJ's. And I was just like, we're never – like, what do you say at that moment? Like, we we haven't raped you yet and we're never going to rape – you." you know what I mean? Like, at yeah. that moment, what do you say to your kid who just heard somebody, this authoritative voice on the radio, like, saying that what motivates gay men to adopt little boys is a desire to fuck them? And your son is looking at you like with fear in his eyes, like what, what? And you're like, that person is a liar, straight people, you know, straight dads. My father was a straight guy. He didn't fuck my sister. Like yeah. that's not what parents do with their children. And that's not what we're about. And uh, to, to go through those things was just such a, such a nightmare. And and to have the debate be, the entire time be how do kids with gay parents, they wanted the marriage debate to be uh, kids deserve a mother and a father Um, which you don't hear from the kids deserve a mother and a father crowd anymore about this child separation policy at the border. No, you don't. Silence uh, from these motherfucking Brian Brown pieces of shit. But it was all about how kids with uh, gay parents turn out. And so there was just this pressure on our son not to step on any like typical adolescent landmines for fear of it ending up on Fox News.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think – A lot of that is very specific to you and when this happened, and I also – I bet there's, you know, some listener who is raising a kid right now who is dealing with some different version of what you're talking about, and – First of all, I'm so sorry that you went through that. Can I just be a person that's looking in oh. your eyes and saying that? <laughs> well, thank it's you. It's not I mean, fair we, and it sucks and I'm sorry.
1: We got through it and it yeah, was Yeah, of course fine. you did. But like circling all the way back to like some queer people are shitty, we were adopting and yeah. I did a piece for NPR for, for I think This American Life about the adoption process and somebody figured out where our agency was and sent a bunch of like poison pen letters to our agency to try to stop us from adopting and it was a gay guy. Sure. And and I was did the piece worried that, like, right-wing fundamentalist Christians were going to track down our adoption agency and try to scuttle our adoption. And the only person who – literally the only person who tried to stop Terry and I from adopting was this toxic piece of shit who had was externalized his knew? self-hatred. It's a person who I believe we knew who it was. But, okay. of course, they couldn't share the letter with us. Got but it. they had to do this big – you know, they get – an adoption agency gets a flagged warning about – yeah. Like what's horrible about you. And even if it's a lie, they have to like then reopen the investigation into your family and whether you should be allowed to adopt and ask you all these questions and um, do their due diligence because there are other pe- – you know, if straight people can get – fall down drunk and get up pregnant and have a baby and nobody can second guess them and the agency is all theirs and nobody else is implicated. But when there are social workers and adoption agencies and other people involved in creating you as a parent – you're going to be asked questions that a fall down, drunk, get up pregnant couple isn't going to be asked. And you're going to be asked questions that you should be asked. Yeah. So I'm not pushing against pushing out, you know, pushing against that process, but the person who almost stopped us from becoming our son's parents was a gay guy.
0: Well, my dad was adopted. My dad was adopted through Catholic charities in Chicago. And so like I exist because of adoption. Um, like I'm the person I am with the last name I have and mm-hmm. all the experiences that I exist in my life because of adoption, and I lived in Boston when Boston became the first state to legalize same-sex Massachusetts marriage. Massachusetts decision. I mean, in Massachusetts. I was there on the on the on the steps, uh, watching the first couples emerge, and I was also there when uh, Catholic charities in Boston decided to close. Um, as opposed to provide adoption because same sex couples could occasionally or could be considered uh, could sue to be yeah, able to adopt the,
1: the, the rat the scam there though is Catholic charities that do adoptions get public monies to facilitate those adoptions and they didn't want. As, yes. a, yeah, as a condition of taking public money, some yes. of that money from gay people, they didn't want to not be able then to discriminate against gay people. Right. And so they so very they self-righteously cl- so they went out closed. of the adoption business and yes. basically harmed children.
0: Yes. Yes. And it's also true. And um, the Catholic Church, they're experts on in, that, harming uh, children. It's also true in Illinois. I believe that they've just stopped adopting. They didn't like, I don't, I think that they, the Good. organization still works, but they, but they.
1: Religious, Don't
0: do adoptions.
1: Religions should not be facilitating public secular adoptions.
0: Hey, sure, I agree. That being said, it is like it was like, a and the whole idea that we particular. should be
1: entrusting children to the you know the Catholic fucking church, like
0: hey Dan, who, this guy agrees with you.
1: <laughs> who's the you know? Here are these children. Uh, I, it, I remember once during the like height of the marriage equality debate, some Catholic bishop saying uh, that adoption by gay couples is child abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My yeah. entire reaction was, perhaps we should defer to the experts.
0: Right, yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I I mean, I, I can have all those feelings and be like, shouldn't be in that game to begin with, like what a like, shitty organization to have around kids, like all that stuff. And then there's the part of me that's like, I could never adopt through the agency that I am a product of. Like, that is also gnarly. So, um, yeah, Gay but it's people, people almost you. fucked it's up a, your adoption. It's but about <laughs> them. It's not about you. It's about but them. But straight people also um, are trying to get in my way. And Dan, the thing about the two, the two of us, you and I, we will not be stopped. We're going to have great lives.
1: <laughs> no. I always think of Tammy Baldwin's terrific speech You know, 10, 15 years ago that if you want to live in a world where you can put your partner's picture on your desk at work, put your partner's picture on your desk at work and you live in that world. That we have to move into the world and and demand space and live our lives and live our lives and our truths. And that then creates the space for us to live our lives. The people come behind us to live their lives and their truths. Uh, and that's what changes the fucking world.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, then we'll just keep on in the direction that we're moving, changing the world.
1: (laughs) And we'll keep kicking ass. And you know, it's a dark, I get a lot of angry emails right now that you said it gets better. And now like Trump and everything's awful. Right. Uh, There are dividends when things are tough after, if you get in the fight, fight the fight, and then there's going to be a a real payoff in the end. Um, Marriage equality was an outgrowth of the HIV AIDS epidemic and a reaction to it, that the real drive and the real push to uh, legalize same-sex marriage, that the need for it was made crystal clear by how vulnerable people were when they weren't the legal next of kin of their Partners right? Or people they've lived with for ten, fifteen, twenty years. Yes. And homophobic family members blowing into hospital rooms and throwing people out and denying people, not allowing, you know, the husband right. in everything but legal sense to come to the funeral. Like, or not snatching even, houses. Snatching houses, apartments, owned, yeah. Valuable it was it was people were just so vulnerable. Um and so in a way, you know, you look at all these couples who can marry now and marriage is whatever two people say that it is. It doesn't have to be heteronormative or homonormative. It doesn't have to be, you know, people are always like, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's assimilation. It's like, no, it's not. We have assimilated marriage. Marriage has not assimilated us. Um, but uh, I forgot what I was saying. The cold medicine took over.
0: <laughs> but it was great. All The road was great, even if there is no particular destination. I think what you were saying was that Uh, right now we're in this moment, it feels like this is some like impediment that will never.
1: Oh, get in the fight and it not, you know, the fight makes you feel better if you're in it. That's true. And then when you win, suddenly you don't just win that battle. All sorts of ancillary battles are won. Things you didn't even like push for are suddenly yours. Uh, get in the fight and enjoy the fight. Uh, you know, when, when Trump won, all I could think of was act up actually, uh, and pleasure and fun and act up was at once a terror. Uh, and all of our friends were dropping dead around us and it was also a blast and that drove them crazy. And that's the queer superpower that even as we were dying, even as we were fighting for our lives, we were dancing, we were making pornography, we were fucking, uh, we were making art and theater and, and creating joy. And that's what dispirited them. Like the In the 80s, in the 90s, the religious right looked at us and thought, why aren't you curled up on the fetal position on the floor dying? And they would see – there'd be a big academic demonstration and then there would be a fucking party after that. There would be a dance. And it wasn't just like the healthy that went to the dance. Everybody went to the dance. And it was joyful. The fight was joyful. So, yeah, shit is dark right now. And there is a fight. And the fight is what makes it better. So get in there.
0: Beautiful. Okay. We can – Look. You did a great job of – it is literally one hour <laughs> and nine seconds, Dan, that you arrived and that. I'm ranting. I'm ranting. No, it was beautiful. Can I ask you just real quick before you head out for the night to shout out a queero? It's a person or it could be a thing or place that made you feel good being the human I, you are today.
1: I've talked about these guys before and they're uh, insanely important to me. Um, and this is about visibility and anybody can be this queero and you'll never know if you are this queero for someone. Um I was, I don't know, went to see Logan's run with my siblings and parents at Water Tower Place Theater in Chicago, like 70 something when that came out. Uh, and I was, you know, 11 or 12. I don't remember, but just old enough to know, like having been called a faggot all my life that something was up. Right. Uh, and there were two guys in line in the theater in front of us, like two or three guys, two or three folks in front of us holding hands. And my mother wrapped her arms around just me, not my brothers, and was pulling me away and saying to my dad, those guys are weird, under her breath. And I and that made me look at those guys and I was like. There it is. There it is. That's who I am. <sighs> and what I saw when I looked at them was, they're fine. They're happy. They have each other. I'll be fine. Even though I was like, you know, third son, crazy Irish Catholic family, homophobic at the time, so great now, homophobic, Irish Catholic cop dad, Catholic lay minister mom. Uh, it was. I was like trapped. I was like behind enemy lines and trapped and no one could like jet me out. I just had to like suck it up and survive. But seeing them in that line, going to the movies, holding fucking hands, not giving a shit about the cop, three or four folks behind them glaring at them and living their lives and, and loving each other. Oh, that those guys got me through 11 to 15.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean,
1: they were my queeros.
0: That's it. You've been those guys. I, I know you've been those guys.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. You never know. You never know if you were that guy or those guys or those women or those NBs uh, for anybody else. Uh, yeah. But you got, but if you live your truth out in the world and take that risk, those guys were taking a risk, risking violence. Like that was the seventies in Chicago, even water tower. Like they were taking a, chance in that line. It could
0: be a risk. I mean, that's a risk today. Yeah, it yeah.
1: is a risk today. There's still we're so, yeah. still met with violence, but yeah. less so right. than then.
0: Well, Dan, it was awesome having you on this. Thank you so much for braving your cold medicine. <laughs> for having disagreements and agreements with me. My and um also for like being a guy that I saw in front of me in line, except it was just on a paper and I was reading it. But thank
1: you. Dan. Yeah. You're welcome.
0: Yeah. Cheers.